Okay, tonight we will be hitting part three of our plot and the story of God, the Bible. And um, this today is some of the ancient history of the Jews. Um, but remember, it's a true story and it's our story. So to accurately understand what's currently happening in our part, the part that we're living in now, we need to know the whole story, which is why we're looking at the various components of the story. So you can follow along. Um, I made available a, a timeline um, that is going to go over the events of what I cover tonight. So you can refer to that as we go along. Remember, in part one, we saw the purpose of God, that God creates everything good. He especially blesses mankind and he calls them to image him to fill the earth and to rule over it. But in part two, we found the problem that all people will disobey that or sin, which distorts the image of God that they're meant to display and all people will die. So the story moves from that beginning portion, which is kind of the universal history of all humanity, Genesis 1 through 11, all people to focus in on a particular group of people, starting with a man, Abram. Abram's descendants would be the Hebrew people, later the Israelites. To this day, they're called the Jews. And by the way, if you're wondering, Abraham lived around 200, I'm sorry, 2200 BC or so. So this is a real event in, in history just 4,000 years ago, right? Um, a key part of the life of Abraham is a covenant that God made with him, the Abrahamic covenant. A covenant is uh, generally just between two parties and uh, some are conditional. If you do this, I will do that. That's sort of a, a covenant agreement. But this, the Abrahamic covenant, was an unconditional covenant. God made a promise to Abraham and regardless of Abraham, God was committed to making it happen. Only God ratified the covenant. Well, what was that covenant? He made a covenant to this man, Abram, to make his family into a nation, first of all, so he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, to give his family a land, or he promised a land, the promised land um, in, in today's Middle East, and third, to make Abram and his offspring a blessing to the whole world. So God promises unilaterally without anybody else's help or commitment to give a land, a nation, and a blessing. And in Genesis, we see God starting to fulfill that unconditional covenant um, as Abraham's family starts to grow. Abraham has a son Isaac. Isaac has a son Jacob. Those are the patriarchs. That's the period that we're in. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, which is where we get from his sons, the 12 sons there, it's the beginning of the Israelites, okay? We read multiple times in the time of the patriarchs the repeated promise of God. He's going to give a nation, a land, a blessing. And we read in the beginning parts of, of, of Genesis, in the book of Genesis, how God overcomes the odds to carry out those promises, specifically to provide a nation. He provides through the miraculous birth of Isaac to 100-year-old parents, Abram and, and Sarai. Um, he provides through uh, one of the 12 sons, Joseph, being sold by his brothers into slavery, only to rise to power in Egypt and eventually save his family from death by famine because of his role in the, the nation of Egypt. So God is making sure that his covenant will be fulfilled by preserving and growing his family. 
Well, what happened with that family? At the very beginning of the next book, Exodus, we read in Exodus 1-7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Starting to sound familiar, they started to fulfill out the God, fulfill God's purposes to multiply, to be fruitful, to fill the land. And uh, then, though, the large family of the Israelites was made slaves in Egypt for 400 years. So God raised up a leader, Moses, to lead the people out of Egypt. And you've heard the story. It's the famous story of the, the 10 plagues where Moses tells Pharaoh on God's behalf, let my people go or else this is going to happen. And Pharaoh keeps not letting the people go. Um, Pharaoh lives in active rebellion against God, which we learned in part two, the problem that brings death. So the final plague is the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt. All the firstborn sons would be killed in the land except for those families that participate in the Passover event. You're going to hear a lot of familiar events as we kind of move through all of this. But in the Passover, each Israelite family would select a lamb without blemish. They'd kill it. They'd place its blood on the door pavement door frame of the home and then when God passed through the land that night to kill all of the firstborn any home that was marked by the blood of the lamb was passed over and that son's life was spared so because of that plague Pharaoh loses his son and finally he decides to let the people go God had saved them out of Egypt he miraculously guides them through the Red Sea to safety at the base of Mount Sinai Okay, that Exodus event, by the way, is probably the most significant event, uh, maybe of the Old Testament, but certainly in the, in the history of the Israelites. They continue to kind of look back to it. Well, out, at Mount Sinai, Moses met with God on behalf of the Israelites, and another covenant is made, the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant has some basic stipulations, the Ten Commandments, um, famously, and then it also has detailed stipulations uh, that we read throughout actually the next few books of the Bible, 600 plus uh, laws that is given to the people of Israel as a part of this covenant. It's called the law, it's called the law of Moses, and also in this covenant, like in the Garden of Eden, they would enjoy some fellowship with God. As part of the covenant, they were told to construct a sanctuary or a, a tabernacle, a tent, so that God could dwell in their midst. That sanctuary itself was decorated kind of like the, the Garden of Eden or symbols of it with floral patterns and angels and jewels and that sort of thing. Well, as opposed to the Abrahamic covenant, this is a contingent agreement, the Mosaic covenant is, that both parties, God and the people of Israel, are obligating themselves to. So if you do these things, God says, then I will bless you. If you don't do these things, you will be cursed. It's really kind of an expansion of the Garden of Eden choice, right? Do this and, and live and experience flourishing life. Don't do this and or, or do this other thing that I told you not to and you will experience curses. So what's the problem built into this covenant? Uh, in the story, we've already learned about the, the problem that human beings don't choose to follow God's way. And that that sin means death. And so God's giving them away, but we already know they're not going to be able to keep it. So built into that covenant is a workaround. 
the sacrificial system. God knows and they know they're not going to be able to keep it, or at least God knows. So in Leviticus, it describes how Israel can regularly have their sin atoned for through rituals in and around the tabernacle prescribed by God through the practices of the priest, people could make amends for their sins that they were definitely going to commit, we've already seen. So it's kind of a sin management system baked into this covenant. So when sin would happen, an animal sacrifice was prescribed by God to atone for it, and in so doing, their sin would be forgiven. So they would lay their hands on the animal that was about to be slain, on, on the head of the animal, to show, hey, the consequences of my sin is being transferred to this goat or bull, whatever you do, and God is accepting blood for blood. Well, the, co the covenant is explained. The Israelites hear it. They agree to it. Exodus 19.8. Moses took the book of the covenant. He read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, listen, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. We probably should already be skeptical at this point in the story because of what we've seen of, of all of humanity in that universal history at the beginning of the Bible. So hardly moments later, after saying this, the Israelites begin uh, building and worshiping a golden calf. <laughs> so fortunately, God has a word about himself. God describes himself, listen to this. Um, he says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God is merciful and gracious, fortunately. And so he gives them the opportunity, even after worshiping the golden calf, to reset, they recommit, they go ahead and erect the tabernacle and they anoint the priests and the system of the Mosaic Covenant begins. And then they set out for that land that God had promised in the Abrahamic Covenant. Well, barely a few chapters later, the Israelites begin to complain in that journey to the promised land. They complain about the food, they complain about the leadership, and then they start being fearful about the people in the land that they were supposed to overtake. And so God, because they're already breaking covenant with him, sentences them in Numbers 14 to wander in the wilderness where they were journeying to the promised land for 40 years so that no one who had complained or was afraid would get to enter into the promised land. Again, God's promise of giving the land to Abraham's descendants, it's going to happen because he promised it. But for that generation, that blessing of entering the land was forfeited. It would come to the next. So as the new generation is about to enter the promised land, um, this is uh, the book of Deuteronomy. This is largely Moses repeating the law that had been given in the last couple of books. And Deuteronomy 28 through 30, near the very end, uh, where they're right on the border, this next generation of entering the land. These are key chapters, Deuteronomy 28 to 30, really key chapters to understanding the rest of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 28 says something along the lines of, if you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. That's the agreement. The blessing would mean prosperity, lots of children, plenty of food, national security, the curses, if they don't obey, would mean pestilence, famine, sickness, 
their enemies will defeat them, all sorts of misery, or in a word, life or death. Again, literally the options that Adam and Eve had in the garden. I want to read from Deuteronomy 30, which gives kind of a good, um, a good overall description of the choice that God is giving to these people and really what the covenant of Moses is all about. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. I'll read through verse 20. See, I have set before you, God saying today, life and good, sorry, life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish." Again, these things, it's repeated echoes of what's been said so far. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan River to enter and possess if you disobey. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, and that you may dwell in the land the Lord your God swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them. So basically, obey God, keep the covenant, and things will go really well. Rebel and devastation will come. So Israel begins to enter the promised land and have victory over some of those cities that they go into um, to defeat victory because the Lord causes it. Some of the battles, however, were lost. Whenever there was disobedience to God's command, Israel starts to lose. There's a one-to-one -one connection. They're obeying and they're winning. They're disobeying and they're losing. But um, those lost battles are followed usually by some sort of repentance. Oh, we're sorry, God. And then they begin to have victories again. And then near the end of Joshua, we read in Joshua 21, 43, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. So part of that Abrahamic covenant, I promise I'm going to give you a land, and he's making a nation out of them with millions of people at this point. All that God has said is, is coming true. And they took possession of the land, and they settled there, Joshua 21 says. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Okay, When the land then is mostly conquered, we read at the end of Joshua another covenant renewal, the Mosaic Covenant. Jonah, or, uh, Joshua kind of recounts the story of Israel as a people. He talks about God's faithfulness to bring them through. And he says to all people very famously, Choose this day who you will serve. He's given us the land. Who are you going to follow? After so many different mess-ups, okay, let's start. We're in the land. What are we going to do now? And listen to Joshua 24, starting in verse 16. The people answered, Far be it from us <laughs> that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the ways that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord, for he is our God. 
But Joshua said to the people, You're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after you have done good. So Joshua's like, I don't know if you know what you're committing to, and I don't think you can do it. But listen to what the people tell Joshua. No, but we will serve the Lord, they said. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. They're in the land. We promise to obey. How'd they do? What did life look for them once they were in the land? Well, a repeated line in the next book of Judges says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Again, kind of like Adam and Eve. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes at this period leads to chaos in the land. This is the time period, if you look on your chart, the period of the Judges. There is a pattern in the book of Judges during this time, and my uh, seminary professor, Carl Laney, who actually a lot of this content uh, is, I, I've been, I reviewed my class notes so I could have this, but um, he points out that this pattern in the Judges is using ours. Rest, a time period of rest, then relapse, Israel starts doing what's evil, ruin, God's wrath or judgment is stirred, so they experience oppression and destruction. Then repentance, they cry out to God for help, and then restoration. In that restoration, God sends a military leader called a judge to rescue them, and then they have rest again. Okay, but then that judge dies, and it starts all over again. There's rest for a moment, but then relapse into sin, ruin, repentance, restoration, rest, and then relapse again through the whole process. I wish we could go through those stories. Um, but everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it wasn't working. They were not able to keep the covenant. In contrast to God's faithfulness to his covenant and giving Abraham a land and, and a nation of people, mankind is on the struggle bus again trying to keep their um, their portion of the Mosaic covenant. So at some point, Israel starts demanding a king like all the nations have. So the last judge, Samuel, appoints the first king, Saul. So from the 12 tribes of Israel, Israel's sons that first occupied the land, these 12 people groups, we now move to one, what's called the United Kingdom or the monarchy in Israel, where everybody exists together under one king. Well, listen to what Samuel says as he's exiting kind of leadership as the last judge and Saul is about to take office, the first king. Listen to what he says. You said to me, to the people of Israel, he says this, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Then listen, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Sound familiar there? A lot of familiar stuff going on. And of course, Saul has major failures as a king. He has a ton of pride. He has no integrity. He's not keeping God's commands. Eventually, Saul is replaced by David. You can tell, man, we're moving in quick swoops here. 
Um, David is a stronger and godlier character than, than Saul, certainly, and he really trusts God. He's exemplary in a lot of things, okay? Until 2 Samuel chapter 11, where he commits adultery with a woman and then has the woman's husband killed. Um, David's presented in other places in scripture as a model of a good king. Uh, that's kind of what Chronicles presents him as. But even David, who in many ways we can strive to be like as a man after God's own heart, scripture says, fails. So we begin to see that even in kings, there's, there's no king for Israel that will rule without sin. But there is something very significant that happens during David's reign, and it's called another covenant, the Davidic covenant. Okay, the Davidic covenant. David is promised by God, first a, a son to succeed him on the throne that will build a house for the Lord. That's the, the temple. Okay, but then the promise goes beyond that son, um, who would be Solomon, to speak of a forever kingdom. And God says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, David, God says, shall be established forever. 2 Samuel 7, 16. Now this is another unconditional or unilateral covenant, like the Abrahamic covenant. It's not going to depend on the people's obedience to it, that if-then Mosaic covenant. But God is going to do this for David no matter what. Well, included in that promise to David of a forever kingdom is something else. There's whispers throughout the whole Old Testament story of a great future king for Israel. A Messiah is what they would call him, who's a savior. He's somebody who would come and rule and deliver his people and have complete justice and bring hope and bring peace to the people of God, Israel. Those whispers are all over the Old Testament. In fact, you might remember one of them that we talked about specifically in Genesis chapter 3, the first gospel, that Eve's offspring would crush the head of Satan. Well, who is that going to be uh, that's coming? So the people of God at this point with the Davidic covenant and, and the, the prophetic voices speaking around that begin to believe and understand that God is going to provide a future king from the line of David with a throne that would be established forever. Okay, that's the Davidic covenant. Well, then we enter into the section of scripture called Kings or First and Second Kings, and we can start to ask. I mean, it's a whole long list of stories of kings that succeed one another, and we can ask which one of these is going to be the promised king? Which one of these coming from David's line is going to be the Messiah? Well, the Kings is a period of ups and downs, mostly downs, Solomon, uh, David's son, is the next king, and he, he does a great thing. He does build that permanent uh, tabernacle, or, or the, the temple, the permanent one, and dedicates that temple to the Lord. Listen to what he says in this, in this dedication after some of the failures of the previous kings, David and Saul. He says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. The Lord our God will be with us. And then to the people, listen to what he says. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. It sounds like every other recommitment that Israel has made over the years after their multiple failures. And for a minute in Israel's kingdom, things are better than ever for them. But just three chapters later, 
um, than from what I just read of Solomon challenging people to recommit to the Lord is 1 Kings 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, which the, the law had already said that you shouldn't enter into marriage with a foreign woman because they're going to turn your heart to other gods, not because they're foreign, but because they have a different religion and they're going to turn your heart. Well, Solomon, what do you know, took 700 wives and 300 concubines, and they turned away his heart so that he began to worship foreign gods. By the way, in all of these stories with the kings, wherever the king goes, the rest of the people tends to follow in their obedience or disobedience. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. No surprise. <clears throat> Solomon's sons then split the kingdom in two. Uh, there's the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. This period in, Judah's, in Israel's history is called the divided monarchy. So Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And the rest of uh, first and second kings describes the reign of those subsequent kings. Well, kings kind of shows that it starts to answer this question. How will Israel do under the leadership of kings? How will they keep the covenant Will these kings, will any of them be the promised Messiah from David's line? So we go through a whole list of them. We won't really talk specifically about any of their stories, but you can read them in First and Second Kings. But you have Israel, the northern kingdom. The Bible describes 19 different kings in that line, 19 different generations. And how many of them do you think were evil and how many were good? But all 19 were evil. So and so, this king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This one did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The next one did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they failed so many times to abide in the Lord, to keep his commandments, that eventually God had had enough and he let them be overtaken entirely as a, as a people by Assyria. And the ones who actually lived through it were exiled out of the promised land. They could no longer live there. Well, how would Judah, the, the southern kingdom, do? Well, they also have a line of 19 different kings that's described. And they did a little better. 11 of the 19 were evil. There was eight okay ones. So it's so-and-so did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Often it'll say just like David did for a time. But then after somebody does what's right in the eyes of the Lord, it's usually followed by the very next one failing horrifically. I wish I had time to kind of talk through some of these. But the southern kingdom of Judah is up and down and up and down. It should be called the, the bipolar kingdom. Um, but there, it's a king that follows and a king that completely disgraces the Lord and leaves the covenant. And then another king that restores it and the, the next one leaves it and back and forth and back and forth. And they make such a mockery of God that they too, like the northern kingdom, were overtaken. They were exiled out of the land at God's command. And the capital city, Jerusalem, including that beautiful temple, was burned down to the ground. So there's no more of God's presence in the temple. There's no more covenant keeping with sacrifices that were done in the temple. There's no more even king, at least, that can be visually seen. And that left Israel almost hopeless. Uh, there's even a prophet, Jeremiah, who wrote a whole book about uh, just how sad it is. He's weeping over the great city of Jerusalem. That's called Lamentations. Um, this is a time then that enters into what on your chart there says Babylonian exile. Um, let me read from 2 Kings chapter 17, 
uh, which describes really why the northern kingdom was exiled. It gives the reasoning behind that. And I think something almost identical could be said about the southern kingdom as well. So why did this end in such a horrific thing that the the, the land is being taken away, that this, this promise seems to be going nowhere, the promise of the king and a nation it seems to be going nowhere. Like how could it be led into this? How did they arrive at this place? And listen to this, it describes why. It says, and this occurred because the people of Israel, this is 2 Kings 17, starting in verse seven. This occurred, this exile out of the land occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places or places of worship in all of the towns from watchtower to fortified city. And they set up for themselves pillars and asherim, other gods, on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. This is his covenant language. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and by every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God, and they made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal, so these other gods. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And then, as I said, that whole, that tribe, that southern kingdom eventually is also overtaken by the Babylonians. So we see nobody can keep the covenant with the Lord. Instead, everyone does right in their own eyes. Everyone rebels against God. So instead of blessing, they face destruction. They just can't get it right. Chronicles very clearly kind of lays out the story again. It's a retelling of this whole story in a way that kind of highlights blessing comes to those who are obedient, cursing to those who aren't. Well, the people live in, uh, in exile for about 70 years, the kingdom of Judah for 70 years. And then Cyrus, the king of Persia, lets them return to the land and start to rebuild. Seems like really good news. But what do you think is going to happen this time? How well are they going to keep the covenant? What's their track record? So it, it, it starts out good. You have a glimmer of hope in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The, the temple is rebuilt. Worship is restored. The wall around the city of Jerusalem is rebuilt. It's looking good. Listen what happens when all these things are done. They're ready to go. All of these returned exiles to the land. They say this in Nehemiah 9 verse 38. Um, 
well, well they, they read the words of the law for, for days. They celebrate a feast. They're confessing their sin. They bless the Lord. And it says they make a firm covenant to Nehemiah 9.38 to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. And they throw a massive party and they're in it. This time we're going to do it. And they renew kind of the Mosaic covenant yet again. But at the very end of Nehemiah, it's really the end of the Old Testament timeline of the story, we find out one, the temple starts being neglected. Two, um, the Sabbath is being broken. Uh, the priesthood starts to be kind of desecrated. And the people start to take on some of the customs of the other nations. Believe it or not, once again, they cannot get it right. Do you see the pattern here? That's the title for part three of our story, the plot is the pattern, okay? Do you see it? The, the covenant is made at Mount Sinai and the people say, we will obey. And then they worship the golden calf and then they repent and the covenant is renewed. Okay, we're gonna do it this time, we will obey. And then on the way to the promised land, they disobey so that generation is not able to enter. Well, then they repent and the covenant is renewed and the next generation goes to enter the land. Okay, we're going to do it. We're going to obey. And then they have a few battles where they disobey and they start losing. So they start to repent. And then when the land is mostly taken, the covenant is renewed with Joshua. Okay, they've got it. Who will you serve this day? We will serve the Lord alone. Then comes the pattern of the judges where there's rest for a minute, but then they relapse and there's ruin and then they repent and then there's restoration and then there's a little bit of rest, but then they relapse again and over and over and over again. So let's try having kings. Samuel says, okay, but, but make sure as Saul is installed to the kingship, make sure to obey. Well, Saul didn't obey. David has a nice attempt for a minute. He's exemplary in every way, but he then breaks the covenant. Solomon, the next king, builds a beautiful temple of God. Um, maybe it seems like that would really solidify the covenant. This is where it's going to happen. But then Solomon fails. The kingdom splits in two. Israel, the northern kingdom, barely even tries to keep the covenant with, with every king of theirs doing evil. Judah, the southern kingdom, is a little better, but we see this pattern of a good king and a disobedient king. A good king and a disobedient king, followed by recommitment, and then another recommitment, and then disobedience, and then another recommitment, disobedience, until finally the disobedience leads to exile. You see the, the pattern going on here? And then the Israelites, they have 70 years in exile to kind of think about it in a foreign land, and God brings them back. Of course, they renew the covenant again. We will obey. And once again, the story kind of ends with them beginning to break it again. Pattern. What are we learning from this? How will the problem of sin be addressed? Can mankind work himself out of the hole that he created? What do we find? We find that they can't get it right. Whatever is tried in, in human strength always eventually ends in failure. There may be little victories along the way, but the trajectory is failure. 
even with all the chances that they have, you think to yourself, well, surely this time they're going to get it. They'll, they'll get better over time, but then they disobey again, and oftentimes in a worse way. Even with a way baked into the, the, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, of how they can have their sins forgiven as they go along because they're going to continue to sin, eventually they, they tend to abandon even that process of the covenant. No human being can help us out of our disobedience so that we can get back to what we were created for. Not military leaders, not kings, not recommitment after recommitment after recommitment, not even horrible judgments and, and discipline that fall on people. Nothing can happen. There's nothing in us that we can muster up to get back to that garden-like experience and to the purposes that God designed for us. We can't fix the problem. We can't do it. And as we're reading this story, we should also be asking, well, what about those covenants that supposedly aren't dependent on us? What about those? Like if the Mosaic covenant seems to be a failure, then what about the Abrahamic and the Davidic? What about the promises to Abraham and his descendants that they, they would be a blessing to the world? Well, is that going to happen? What about the promise to David that his descendant will be a king with a throne that will last forever and rule in justice and peace? Is that ever going to happen, that Messiah? What about the promise that Eve's descendant will crush the head of Satan who really stirred up this problem to begin with? That's where, we, where we're left with part three of the story, the pattern. Okay? Now, look at the time. I know we've only covered half of the Old Testament. Maybe I promised differently. I'm sorry. But these are the main events, the events here on this chart that kind of that unfold. And the next part of the story in chronological order starts with the New Testament. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The rest of the Old Testament books that we haven't covered fit into different places within the timeline that I just explained. So we have the Old Testament, which is kind of the majority of the Bible here, right? Uh, let's see. Uh, about like that. That's the Old Testament. That's the New Testament. And then of the Old Testament, we've covered through basically Esther that I didn't talk specifically about Esther, but we've covered about that much. So halfway through. Well, well, this this first part, let me turn it this way. This first part that we covered is, is the beginning. Of, this is the timeline. This is in chronological order from Genesis um, chapter, really from the beginning, chapter 1 all the way to the end of Second Chronicles and Esther. That, that goes in chronological order, basically. And then you get to the rest of the Old Testament books. Well, all of those books fit inside the first part of the story. So they're actually kind of spread out, written at different times, but within this timeline that we've gone over. You can even see on that the different places that other books that I haven't even mentioned are kind of tossed into the mix. So um, we're going to get there. Though The rest of the books, though, are kind of a different genre of literature. There are a bunch of different kinds of literature. So it's not so much like we've been looking at historical narrative, but there's poetry, there's wisdom literature, there's prophecy. And so we're going to hit a pause on the story. And next time we're going to talk about these other books of the Old Testament and where they fit into the timeline and how to read them. How do we make sense of them? Okay, so whew, this is quite a story and it's a true story. And I hope that you're learning a lot about God and mankind because it's our story. It's our problem. And it's 
still the pattern of humanity.